And, all right, well, today we're going to look at a few different uh, small prophetic books. So the, in kind of the back portion of the Old Testament, there are a few small prophet books. And so today we're going to look at some selected passages from Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Um, is it a little warm? Should we turn down the AC, or is it just me because I've been running around? Everybody okay? Let me know. Is it a little warm? Okay, good, good. Okay, I just, I was like, man, I'm a little hot, so, you know, we, we can, if anybody needs to, best right over there, she so go bump the temperature down a little bit, so if anybody's uncomfortable, just let me know. Um, I'm usually running hot, so that's not a surprise. All right, so we're looking at Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. To start this off, just want to kind of introduce you to these prophets. Micah is the earlier of the prophets, and then Zephaniah and Habakkuk prophesied around the same time. So Micah prophesied probably in the range of 740 to 695 B.C., and that doesn't really tell us a lot. So let's think about it in this way. He was a contemporary of Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. So if you read Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea, and you read Micah, you get people who are speaking in the same kind of time period. And then if you go into Isaiah, you can, Isaiah gives you specific markers of what kings he spoke to. And so you could find yourself then in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and say, oh, here's where these prophets popped up. Uh, Micah is mentioned by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 26, so he must have been a fairly prominent prophet known by the people of Israel pretty well for the fact that Jeremiah would say, oh, I'm familiar with Micah, his prophecies, and what he was about. I enjoy the uh, book of Micah. Maybe I'll come back to it and preach on it someday because Micah is very clearly a prophet who comes from a rural area in uh, Judah, and he's speaking about some issues that are happening among the privileged, kind of rich class of his day, and how they are not paying attention to the concerns and things that are happening to those who are more poor and living in the rural areas. So he deals a lot with oppression and, and how that oppression is going to get confronted by God and God's plans to relieve the suffering of the people uh, who are most affected by um, you know, rich and powerful people doing oftentimes what rich and powerful people do, which is are greedy and take advantage of situations so that they can gain more riches and more power. So Micah confronts that, and it's interesting to see how he does it. We'll look at a little bit of that today. Uh, Habakkuk, so then Habakkuk is more a little bit later on, also with Zephaniah in that six, uh, 630 to 600 B.C. time period. Similar time period as Jeremiah, so if you open up Jeremiah and you look at Jeremiah, you can look at Zephaniah and you can look at Habakkuk and say, oh, these guys prophesied in roughly the same time period. Uh, Habakkuk spends a lot of time lamenting the triumph of violent people and struggles with suffering. Um, one thing that I think is always important to remember as I look at Scripture, um, I think probably the, the greatest objection that we'll find in the world to the idea of a, a loving God and of having a relationship with a loving God is the existence of suffering in the world. And one thing that maybe is helpful to bring into discussion with people that say, well, why, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do tragic things happen? Uh, why do we look at tragedy in the world around us? Is to say to people, well, one thing that comforts me is that Scripture doesn't shy away from that fact. There are numerous voices and books throughout Scripture that struggle with suffering and, and pain and why unjust suffering happens in the world. Habakkuk is definitely one of those books. He struggles with it, trying to make sense of the world around him, and, uh, and so that we'll look at that together too. And then Zephaniah, a similar time period to Habakkuk, and 
What's most interesting to me about Zephaniah is he seems to mainly be focusing on the time period where Josiah came and ruled. So last week we got a chance to talk about Josiah, probably the best king in the history of all the nation of Israel. I would put even Josiah probably even more faithful than David as far as following after what God wanted for him. Maybe learned from his grandfather Manasseh's turn towards God and devoted his whole life towards changing this nation around. And Zephaniah deals with whether or not this is a real legitimate repentance and, and calls the people to make it genuine and say, what does it look like to have a genuine relationship with this God, God who's called us to be different? So these are the reasons all these three prophetic books are interesting, are fun. You know, I would say that if, like me, you're a Bible geek, you could say, hey, this summer I'm going to spend some time in one of these little prophetic books that I haven't spent much time in before. You could pick any one of those three books. You could go online, you could research, well, what's a good commentary on it? You could go to the library and get a good commentary on it, and someone would walk you through. I could recommend some to, uh, to help understand what is really unique about each one of these prophecies, because I, I think that there is something that we can draw out of each one. And I'll try to highlight something for you today, but just to know there's a lot you can dive into. And I think if I had to draw out kind of an overall, an overall picture of what these prophets are saying, uh, the overall idea that they each are trying to get across is that we can get to a place in relationship with God where we can live out of the reality of his love and let it anchor our existence no matter what's happening around us. We can trust in his love in such a way that no matter what circumstance is going around, whatever anyone else is saying, whatever is happening in the world, we can live in a place of being anchored in his love. So I'm going to read for us from Micah chapter 4, and we're going to read down through verse 8. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine, under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever." As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter Jerusalem. So in Micah, we get this vision of peace and prosperity, and it starts off with this idea of the mountain of the Lord. Now, I wonder, a little bit of interactivity, so everybody take a deep breath. Uh, anybody, anybody here ever climbed a mountain? You know, if you've climbed a mountain, raise your hand. Oh, hey, Don. Good, good. Oh, oh, hey, thank you. Very good, Larry. You, all right, over there, too. All right, so uh, any, any reflections on the experience of climbing the mountain and getting to the top? What was it like? Does anyone want to share what it was like when you got to the top of the mountain? Cold? Cold? Where, where'd you go? 
Oh, New Mexico. Okay, yeah, I climbed, I climbed a, little, a little mountain in Arizona, which I guess people, well, I, I never really thought of their mountains in Arizona, but obviously there are the Grand Canyon and so forth. But yeah, all right, interesting. A big crater. All right, wow. Oh, Mount Fujiyama. Wow, that's neat. Yeah, very neat. Yeah. All right, well, I think, I, I think it's important for us to, to think about when we run into a passage that talks about the Lord calling all nations to the top of a mountain, of what it means to get on top of a mountain. And I think the thing that you can most realize is that, of course, when you get on a mountain, you see everything there is to see. You can see all around you. And the other thing that you'll find is that very, very rarely is there really anything up on the top of the mountain. There's no, there's no houses up there. There's no kingdoms up there. It's just you, the clouds, the, the landscape, uh, the birds. and that, It's just you and, as this passage would say, it's you and God. So when we see God talking about, hey, let's go up on the mountain together. Let's go up on the mountain and talk. What God's saying is leave everything else behind. And let's just have it be you and me. Now this is... A, a theme, a motif that occurs throughout Scripture. In fact, I would argue to you that the passage that we most often think of in, returns, in terms of the rapture, when you hear about the rapture, that passage really is Paul talking about someday God's going to come and have us meet him on the mountain. Someday it's going to just be you and me, as in God and me having a conversation. Our relationship is going to be everything that's left, and he's calling us up on the mountain where we're going to have face-to-face conversation with him. And so if you've ever been on top of a mountain, I have a feeling that you've, you've experienced a little taste of what God's saying here, where you've left everything else behind. It's required a lot of work. You're probably out of breath by the time you get there. Some mountains you have to have oxygen to bring with you in order to survive that journey. And, and as you look around you and you see the beauty of the world, God there is able to speak to you and say, hey, let's talk about what's going on between you and I and the kind of relationship I want you to have. And so Micah has this beautiful image where God calls all the nations up on a mountain to him. And what's the first thing he says to them? Beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. So God says to the people, come on up on the mountain, all you nations, all you warlike people, Russia, China, U.S., uh, Britain, all of you guys come up on the mountain, and what we're going to do is we're going to start to garden. That's what we're going to do. And isn't that, that's a beautiful image. And I, you know, I enjoy doing a little vegetable garden, and, and I, love, I love going around and seeing people working on their gardens, seeing beautiful flowers that people have made. And isn't it beautiful that God would tell all these nations, these warring nations, Micah speaking in the middle of times where you have the Assyrians fighting the Babylonians, and the Assyrians and Babylonians threatening the Israelites, and the Israelites fighting with the Edomites, and, and all this fighting, and God says, come on up and let's make a garden together. Come on up and look at this world that I've given you. Let's, let's, let's use it to bring fruit into the world that brings health and life to people. That's the kind of life that I have for you. And then as you look at what Micah continues this vision of peace and prosperity, he then says, well, let me tell you about the kind of people that God wants in his nation. Let me tell you the kind of people that God's decided are going to lead this future kingdom he's created by calling up on the mountain. And what kind of people does Micah say are going to lead that nation? He immediately says, the lame are my remnant. Now, the, the one kind of person who can't end up on the top of the mountain is the person who can't walk, right? That's the person who can't end up there. 
the person, especially in their day, like uh, thankfully in our day, we might be able to find technological advances where we could help someone who really wants to climb a mountain, get up a mountain who can't walk. But here in this scenario, God says, this nation I'm creating, it's a nation that's going to bring life and fruit to the world. The world that you see around you as you're up on top of the mountain is going to burst forth and bring uh, vegetables and fruits and flowers to the world. That's the kind of nation I want you to be. All your war-like devices, all your fighting is going to be directed towards this life of love and, and, and uh, prosperity in me that I want you to have. And the people who are going to lead it are the people who aren't even able to get on the mountain. And how are they going to get there? I mean, the answer is obvious. God's going to get them there. It's his design. It's his plan. It's his power that's going to bring this about. So the only people that are in God's kingdom, the only people that are leading God's kingdom, that are where God wants them to be, are the people who say, the only way for it to happen is you've got to do it, God. You're the one who has to do it. I can't, I can't do it on my own. I don't have the ability to climb that mountain. My legs don't work that way. You're going to have to be the one to bring it about. So God says, I will gather the lane, I'll assemble the exiles, all those that I have brought to grief, and I will make them a strong nation. I will rule over them in Zion from that day and forever. So you can see in this passage, hopefully, that picture in Micah, where Micah is saying, what we need most of all is to live out of that relationship with God, live out of His resource in our lives, live our lives based on what it is that He wants for us and not what we're capable of accomplishing in our own strength. Let's go up to the mountain where it's us and Him, where it's only Him and only what He wants, and let's listen to what He has to say. Now, the next chapter, the next chapter in Micah, is a chapter that you're probably familiar with, because it's a chapter where later on in Scripture we see these, uh, these guys, these powerful figures who come from the Far East, and they find their way into uh, the nation of Judah because they've heard about this king. They've heard about this king that God is sending to lead his people. And they have seen a sign in the stars of his coming. And they say, well, where is the king? We've seen his sign in the stars. Where's this king who God has promised, who he's going to send his people? And those around them who hear that question say, well, I know of one spot where they talk about this king. And they go to Micah chapter 5, where Micah says, But from you, Bethlehem, though you are the least among the tribes of Judah, from you will come a ruler who will rule over my people, who will shepherd my people Israel. So the lame that are gathered up on the mountain, those who don't have it together and can't figure it out, those who are lost and confused, those who are marginalized and oppressed, those who are on the outside, are all gathered in, Micah chapter 5, under the shepherd who comes from Bethlehem, the shepherd who comes from this little rural town uh, dominated by shepherds, like just third shift, low-class workers in Bethlehem. That ruler comes from there someday, and where does he show up? He shows up in a manger, the place that you'd only look for him if you're the the lowest of the low, the working class of the working class, that's where he comes, and he comes to shepherd his people, gather all the lame, the, the blind, the poor, and gather them together to be his people. So if I want to follow that shepherd, if I want to follow that shepherd, if I want to meet God on that mountain, if I want to live in this place of peace and prosperity that comes from him, that looks like what he wants for my life, I need to remember I can't get there on my own strength. I can't get there on my own strength. When I, when I thought about this passage, I, I was reminded, uh, Chelsea and I, uh, we had an opportunity to vacation in Martinique one time, 
And uh, it's a really, really neat island. Most people spoke French, so we didn't understand much of what was going on. We went to church there. I don't know if we understood maybe 20% of what happened, but it was great to be there with other believers there. Uh, but I remember one time we were going, and we were uh, hiking around this mountain to get to this little beach, and there was, there was a guy there who was in a, uh, in a wheelchair, and his friends were carrying him up the trails, around the trails of the mountain, and down to the beach. He had friends there who gave him this, and I just wish I knew that whole story. You know, I wish I knew, like, what was the connection with Martinique, whether this was something his friends had done for him for multiple uh, islands or multiple vacations. But he had friends or family who were carrying him so that he could get to these places that he'd never be able to get on his own. And that's the picture of this passage. God has places of beauty and peace and life and love prepared for you, but he's got to carry you there. The shepherd that comes from Bethlehem has to be the one that leads you to that place. So beautiful images from Micah. Let's look now at Habakkuk together. So Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. Uh, in Habakkuk and Zephaniah, I'm going to give you kind of the conclusion of the prophecy. So there's a lot that leads up to it. As I said, Habakkuk spends a lot of time saying, why is the world the way it is? Why do violent people um, uh, experience success in life, don't seem to be punished for what they do? Why are these nations oppressing the people of God? Why are the people of God looking uh, to this moment where their city's going to be destroyed? Uh, how does this make sense? He asked those questions. So chapter 3 of Habakkuk, verses 13 through 19. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. So these last few verses of Habakkuk are, are the, uh, basically the climax of the book. Habakkuk asks a bunch of questions about why the world is the way it is. And then we read in verses 13 through 16 how he, his confidence that God is going to deal with the wicked. God is going to confront, and, and there are going to be consequences for, you know, think of our world, all the trouble that, that uh, Vladimir Putin is causing for Ukraine. Habakkuk would say, Vladimir Putin isn't going to live forever. <laughs> there are going to be consequences for living that way and making those decisions. And don't be afraid. God knows that evil people are not going to rule the earth forever. And so he would give you that confidence. But then he kind of comes back and says, but here we are. We live in a world where evil people oftentimes have their way. And, we see, and Habakkuk would say, look at Ukraine and say, look at all the innocent people who have died because of the decisions of a wicked man. Why doesn't God take that wicked man out? He's asking all these questions. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, but when it comes down to it, if the fig tree doesn't bud, if the olive tree doesn't bud, if the, if, the, uh, if the cattle are gone, if the sheep are gone, what he's saying there is if I don't have anything left, I can still trust in God. I can still, his relationship, his love for me is still enough. 
and he gives me the strength to survive. So again, we're called back to this image that Micah gives us of a people who don't have the strength on their own, that God calls into relationship with himself and says, I'm going to give you that strength. And then we're, we hear that concept echoed in Habakkuk, who says that strength is provided for us, that in the middle of the hardest times, in the middle of times that don't make sense, God is still going to give us his life. I can live out of the strength that he provides. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And one of the things I also enjoy about the end of Habakkuk is I didn't actually include the, the note that goes along with this, because there's a note that goes along the book of Habakkuk where he says, this is for the leader of the stringed instruments. This is set in music for you. And I think that's beautiful, honestly. I think it's beautiful that you could, you could have a prophecy like Habakkuk that has so many times where Habakkuk is crying out to God and saying, God, why is the world the way it is? And at the end of it, he'd say, I'm asking you to sing this. I want you to sing it to God. I want you to sing your troubles. I want you to sing the, the questions that you have. I want to sing your struggling to God because when it comes down to it, you know that he hears you and he cares about your song. You know that when it comes from that place deep inside of you, that he is listening and he is going to respond, that he is going to give you his strength. And what a beautiful thing to know that as we follow after Jesus, as we seek to be faithful to his call in our lives, that he wants us to engage with him on a, 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 the deepest level possible. Uh, I don't know how many people hear you sing. If you get up on the stage, several of you, you know, people have heard you sing. But I've noticed most of you don't get up on the stage and sing. I don't know why that is. But I'm guessing it's because maybe we save our singing voices for people we believe will accept us no matter what. Right? Now, if they hear me singing in the shower, it's still going to love me, even when they hear how I sing in the shower. Uh, if they see me walking around and tending to the garden we talked about earlier and, and singing a little song that's on our mind, they're going to love me. They're maybe even going to find it adorable, my, my uh, crack, creaky singing voice. They're going to love it, right? And, and I, I think about that in this passage that Habakkuk is saying, bring all of that to God and sing it to him. Let, let him hear you in your most vulnerable place because he cares and he's going to give you his strength to provide for you. All right, last passage for you, Zephaniah. And we're going to look at the end of Zephaniah together. Zephaniah uh, 3, verses 14 through 17. So Zephaniah, he also, living in the same time as Josiah, is, is talking about what he sees, the, the consequences that are coming for the nation of Judah because of their rejection of God. But he has a lot of comfort for the nation of Judah to say God is here and he's going to bring you through these tough times. And we see the culmination of that in verses 14 through 17. He says, Sing, daughter of Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Now, I think that Zephaniah 3.17 is probably up there, if, if we were going to try to rank the maybe 10 most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, I think verse 17 is up there. 
Um, because in this chapter, Zephaniah is talking to the people of God who've been called into that remnant on the mountain, who've been uh, called back from exile, who've been reconciled to God. God wants to make things right, wants to make a relationship right with you. And he talks to them in verse 17 about what that relationship looks like. And so there's a couple things I want to bring out for you here. Now, some of your translations might say some different things. Um, my translation says, he will take great delight in you in his love. He will no longer rebuke you. Some of your translations might say, he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. Um, and I, I like that translation a little better. I think it's probably a better translation of the phrase because there's, I, I really enjoy this, this verse because it gives you a concept that we don't have a word for in Scripture, but you know it. Uh, Grayson's here, and Grayson's experiencing it. He's, he's quieted by his father's love as he holds, holds him close uh, Zaley's here, and she's experiencing it as she's quieted by Chelsea's love and held close to her. That's the concept here. You know what it's like to have a, uh, a baby screaming, right? It's not, not, not a pleasant experience, right? But when you get to the point, <laughs> some, some amens from the back corner, appreciate it, uh, but uh, when you get to the point where the baby, the screaming baby is quieted, though, and where you have that baby held close to your chest, where that baby knows that the baby is safe, knows that the baby is going to have food, provision, a clean diaper, like the baby knows that everything's going to be okay and is quieted in your love, is in that place where knowing your love brings peace and security and comfort. That's the word that's used here. And we have a bunch of words to describe that, but there's a particular word that's described by the quietness that, that you experience through the love of God that's shown here. And how much do the people of Judah need to know that? People who knew that their nation was going to be taken away from them. People who knew that the city of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. People who were going to be exiled and cast out and lose everything that they had ever known to know that God would still be there to quiet them, still be there to gather them to his, his chest and keep them close and give them his love. But that's not the only image that's beautiful in this passage, because not only that, but he says, he will quiet you with his love. He will take great delight in you. And that first concept of great, uh, take great delight in you, I like too, because the concept here is God will love you, but he will also delight in his love for you. And isn't that an interesting concept? Because we've all probably recently said, I love you to someone. Um, but what God is saying here is more than that. He's saying, I love loving you. Not only do I love you, because I have to love you, <laughs> because you're my people, I've chosen you, but I love loving you. I value the experience of loving you. Loving you is a thrill, and it is the, uh, the joy that I want to express to you. It is a joy to love you and to be in relationship with you. So that's a beautiful thing. That's maybe something you could share with your, your spouse or your children to say, hey, not only do I love you, but I love that I get to love you. And that's what God's saying to his people here. How beautiful is that? I mean, go out today and feel better about yourself because in this passage, God's saying, not only do I love you, but I love that I get to love you. I might be able to understand God loving me, but I feel like that's kind of a burden on him a lot of the time, right? To try to fix messed up me, to try to figure out my life. He's had to forgive me of this or that. He's tried to make these things right and I keep you know messing up or not figuring out what he wants for me I'm blind and, and confused and it must be a real challenge for him to love me but no in this passage he says I love loving you 
I delight in it. It's a joy that I get to love you. So you have that concept. You have the quietness in his love. And then finally, the third concept here is God says, I rejoice over you with singing. And the image here in Hebrew is so beautiful because it is the image of a father who picks up his child and swings them around and dances them around. A a father who's got his child and is so in love and happy with his child that when his child says, spin me, you know, when his child says, dance with me, he's dancing with that child. It's this, this image of delight and playfulness that God's got out of this love he has for his people. So not only does God want to quiet you with his love, not only does he love loving you, but he wants to be in a relationship with you where you experience joy and, and playfulness and the, the best things in life twirling around with you like a father would twirl his daughter or a son would, would, would twirl around with his, his dad. That's the image that they have for you in this passage. And it's an image given to a people who are going to go through an incredibly difficult time. It's an image given to a people who've turned their back on this God over and over, but God doesn't forget to remind them who he is. He doesn't forget to remind them of the relationship he wants to have with his people. Now, you and I, as we go out today, and after we sing our last song, we leave this place, we are going to go out into a world full of people who don't know the quietness of God's love. We're going to go out into a world of people who may have heard that Jesus loves them, but when's the last time that they've heard that Jesus loves to love them? We're going to go out into a world of people who are spinning around aimlessly trying to find their way through life when they could be spinning around held tightly in the embrace of a God who's got a direction and a purpose for every moment of their existence. And the only way they're going to know that is if you share it with them. Zephaniah invites us to do that, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for calling us up on the mountain. Lord, thank you for in the middle of things that we don't understand and suffering that doesn't make sense, speaking to us and saying that your strength is enough and and, and inviting us to sing and share all of our fears and and, and uncertainties with you and and to bring those to you and, and give them to you in the very most vulnerable places within us, just offer our whole lives to you and trust you with that. Thank you, Lord, for quieting us with your love, for loving to love us, and for drawing us close to you and and dancing and rejoicing over us with singing. Uh, What an amazing God. Lord, through that relationship with an amazing God, help me to live an amazing life, a life that's amazing not because of what I can do and the skills that I have and the things that I've figured out, but because of an intimate relationship with you that's flooded every moment of my existence. Don't let me get away from this. Press me to your cheek, press me to your chest, keep me close to you, and help my whole life to be centered on this relationship with you. And Lord, show me how I can share about this love with others. Help me to see those around me who are lost and confused, who don't know where to turn, who don't know about this love, and find the courage, the wisdom to speak to them of that love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us and sing. We're going to sing about the desire for God to revive us, to give us this knowledge of his love that guides our whole life and uh, that we may share it with others.